She wouldn't try to learn, she wouldn't talk to anyone, and she never smiled. The government brought Solani from our ministry partner, Courage Homes. There they pray for her every day. They care for her without abusing her, and they teach her without shaming her. Slowly, Solani has begun to come out of her shell. She is smiling for the first time. She has people who love her and who give her hope that her future is bright. This is Jamal. Jamal lives in Morocco, where it is against the law to be anything but Muslim. Jamal saw the Christian TV shows produced by our partners in Spain and broadcast into North Africa, and he was drawn to the things they said. He decided he wanted to learn more about Jesus. He called the Skype line and talked to someone for hours with his questions. After months of asking questions, and being drawn over and over to the TV programs about Jesus, Jamal became a believer. He talked to his brother and sister and father about Jesus, and eventually they all believed too. They don't know any other Christians nearby, so they have to watch their church service in an online chat room. It's not always easy for them, but they are so happy to be following Jesus. This is Ruslan. Ruslan lives in Russia and grew up in an orphanage. He didn't have any family or anyone who cared about him. When he was 17, he was too old to live in an orphanage. So he was on his own in a world with little education and nobody on his side. Most orphans in this situation turn to crime, drugs, alcohol, or even suicide. But Ruslan was fortunate. He met our partner, Ken, who took him to the harbor a home for orphans who have aged out of the orphanage and don't have anywhere to go. They taught him how to take care of himself, how to work hard, and how to have a better life. Because of the harbor, Ruslan is also becoming interested in the Bible and learning more about Jesus. Good morning. Yeah, you can clap if you want. It's a cool thing. So we have literally have partners all over the world who are making a difference in the lives of people one at a time. And, and this campaign that we're in the uh, throes of here called Impact 2015, uh, what we've desired to do with the faces and the stories is just give you a, a snippet, if you will, of how God is using um, our partners uh, throughout the world to, to really make a difference. And what we are asking uh, is that next week you come prepared uh, to give an offering. So we've sent you an envelope in the mail. We've asked you to grab envelopes. We're asking you as a family to pray over the envelope and just ask the Lord, what is it that you would have me give? We're encouraging everybody to give at least 1% of their annual income to this campaign. 100% of the money 
goes to support our ministry partners. The goal is to raise $300,000 next Sunday with the offering. The only way that's going to happen is if we all decide to participate. So Meg and I have have taped this envelope in our kitchen to the cupboard uh, so that we remember to pray over it and to pray about it, and we're asking you to do the same. I'm actually encouraging you to get an extra envelope. You can go to the information counter if you don't have one, and give them to your kids that have um, some source of income, whether it's an allowance or they're working a little bit, and ask them to do the same thing. It's a great opportunity for you to model something to them about hearing and obeying. So next week, uh, we ask that you come prepared to give that offering. And I want to encourage you to, uh, for many of you, uh, the only way that you can do this is to do it in the form of a pledge uh, for 2015. And we still need to know that because this is how we decide how much money to give to our ministry partners. So if you can give $100 a month or $50 a month or $20 a month, uh, that pledge will make a huge difference to that goal of $300,000 as well. So you can give a one-time gift, you can give quarterly, you can give uh, monthly, but we just sort of need to know come next week. So if you'd pray about it, that would be an awesome thing. So grab your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. And uh, I've been saying this a lot uh, over the last few months, but I'm going to say it again. We really want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, bring whatever it is that you use at home to study the scripture. So if you have a Bible at home that's your study Bible, bring that particular Bible. It's a good place you can write notes and make little uh, 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 notations in it. Or if you are a person that reads off of your, your iPhone or an iPad, that's fine too. We're, we're all about that. But we just want to make sure that you're reading along, especially in, as we go through a, a book of the Bible like we are. We want you to have that. But I also want to encourage you to take notes because when you follow along, when you read along, when you take notes, you're going to retain a lot more of what God has for you. So as you're looking for First John chapter 5, um, I just want to f- share a few things with you. Um, last week, uh, Norflet preached, and if you weren't here, uh, it, was a, it was a home run. It was a great sermon. But what he talked about was the beauty of the mosaic, the beauty of the mosaic that we, we get to live in here at Grace, the mosaic being that, that picture of racial diversity, the, the uh, economic diversity that we have here, the, the age diversity that we have here. Uh, Norflet gave me a new uh, category for our diversity, the preferential diversity. Some of you prefer this over that, and that's part of our diversity as well. But we talked about the, the fact that the mosaic is a beautiful thing. And what I love is that he challenged us, and he said that it's Jesus that brings us in the room, but it's love that keeps us in the room, right? So it's Jesus that brings us together, but it's love that's going to keep us together. And it's not enough for us just to gather on Sundays, that God desires that something more be going on in our lives, that we actually learn to live our lives connected to one another and loving one another. It's really the challenge of First John, isn't it? Norfolk also talked about the challenge of being a mosaic. And in the wake of uh, the Michael Brown, Darren Wilson tragedy, uh, we're certainly reminded of the, of the challenge. We're reminded of the difficulty of during, doing church across racial lines. Um, and there's a few things I just want to say in the wake of that. And the first thing I want to tell you, uh, and maybe you know this, um, but maybe you don't, the media is not your friend. The media is not your friend. It is not their desire that we be racially reconciled. It is not their desire to give you truth. They could care less about the truth. Their desire is to get you fired up. Their desire is to actually get you polarized. The more inflamed, the more upset you are, the more you're going to tune into their station or read their papers or read their magazines. They want you to be as angry as they can get you. And so they 
teach and they, they put their information out there in a way to, to incite your rage. And so the one thing I want you to know is that we cannot, we cannot get our truth from the media. Our truth comes from a much higher source. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how are we to respond? How are we to respond as individuals and how are we to respond as a church? And the fact of the matter is that question in itself is, is very complicated. It's hard to know the answer. But if we haven't learned anything else from studying 1 John for the last 10 weeks, we're to respond in love. Right? Let us love one another for love is of God and Anyone that loves knows God, but those who don't love don't know God. We have to respond differently than the world. We have to respond in love. The scriptures tell us that love is patient, that love is kind, that love is gentle. The scriptures tell us that love bears one another's burdens. One of the challenges that Norfleck gave me last week that I had to, to wrestle with is he said, I want, I want you to, to learn what it means to let, let how did he put it, that, that, that your burdens become my burdens. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know how to do that other than to be in relationship with you. I don't know how to do that other than to engage in conversation with you about what's going on in the, in the Ferguson uh, tragedy. We have to move towards one another and not away from each other in fear. We saw last week, what did it say? It says that perfect love... God's love, the love of the Father, perfect love, casts out all fear. The reason we don't engage one another, the reason we turn on one another, is because we're afraid of what we may encounter as we come together. We're afraid that we're going to hear something we don't want to hear or experience something we don't want to experience. But the scripture says perfect love casts out all fear. It allows us to move towards one another in conversation, in understanding, with empathy, and with the ability to offer grace to one another. And that's exactly what we have to do. So as individuals, we have to move towards one another with a desire to understand. Look, I just, I just want to make this clear. I'm just a white country boy. No, really, I'm just, I'm just a country boy. I grew up in redneck country. You know, and I was just home for a few days, and, and I'm just reminded of, of what a limited understanding I grew up with in the world. And, and I've been in Detroit for a while, and I, and I think differently than I used to, but I can guarantee you that the way I view what happened in Ferguson is partly gone through that filter of how I was raised. But guess what? The way you view it is, is it goes through the filter of how you were raised. Our experiences, our life experiences, the, the color of our skin, what we've experienced from other people, all determine the way we, we experience what happens in Ferguson. And the question is, do I, have to, do I have to really know that? No, but do I want to understand how you feel? Absolutely. That's how we are to, to, to approach this. We are to enter into a conversation where we're not afraid of each other's comments. We're not afraid of, of each other's feelings. And we have to extend grace to one another. You need to extend grace to me because I don't understand, but I can tell you, I want to. And that's all that we can do is move towards one another. So as individuals, we have to not give in to fear and we have to move towards another, one another. But how are we to respond as a church? As a church, we are to show this community and this country and this world that racial reconciliation is possible. That Jesus really does bring us together and that love really will keep us together. 
We are a beacon of hope in a dark world. So what God has called us to is a, is a pretty amazing thing. We get to stand above the fray. We get to show the world that, that not only is it possible, it's happening right here in our midst. And it's not a testimony to some social experiment. It's testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us brothers and sisters across racial and economic and age lines. We have to stand apart. And I just want to, maybe this is a confession for you, but sometimes as I lead in the context of this church, uh, I often think to myself, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if we can really do this. I don't know if this, this mosaic is sustainable. Will we still be a mosaic 10 years from now? And I go and I, and I ask the Lord, and I think, God, God, is this really even possible to do something that the world has really been incapable of doing? And what I love is that when we get to... 1 John chapter 5, God answers my question. This is God's sovereignty to have us teaching this section of 1 John on this particular Sunday in the wake of all that's happened in Ferguson. So I want to read for you 1 John 5 verses 1 through 4. And I want to just set the stage here that what John is doing is he's written this amazing epistle, this amazing letter, and now he's into the, his concluding remarks. He's actually into his victory speech. And everything that we're going to look at today is this really profound victory speech that John gives. But he says in, in verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And the commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world this is the victory that has overcome the world even our faith who is it that overcomes the world only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God let's pray Lord I am so thankful for your sovereignty I'm thankful that uh, we could never be uh, so smart as to plan First John chapter 5 on this particular week with the, with the events of the world happening the way that they are. But, but in your sovereignty, you chose that this is where we would be on this particular Sunday to, choose, to study this particular verse. And Lord, I pray that you would use this message to reach into our hearts and to, to change the way we see each other, to change the way we respond to you. Lord, that our hearts would be soft and pliable in your hands, that we would leave this place different than we came. Help us to be the church you've called us to be right here on this corner. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not sure if you got this as I read through it, but look at verse 4. Verse 4, the words are the victory that has overcome. Purposeful language there. He didn't write the, the victory that will overcome. He didn't write the, the victory that might overcome, uh, might overcome or the victory that could possibly, if you do everything just right, it's, it might happen, that it might overcome. No, the, the word is has, and it's both present tense and future tense, and it's absolutely definitive. The victory that has overcome the world. It is right now, it is in our face. We have everything we need for life and godliness. How cool is that? So John writes in verse 3, if you look at it, he says this victory that we have are come. And the victory that we have, what he's talking about, is the ability to obe be obedient to God. And what does it mean to be obedient to God? That we 
love one another. If we love one another, we're being obedient to the scripture. So, if, so we have this ability to be able to love one another. We have everything we need to do that. And, it's, and the, the passage says that, that this ability is not burdensome. It's not oppressive. It's not confining. It's not weighty. We have the victory. We can overcome. We can love each other differently. We already have everything we need right now in order for that to happen. This one truth, this, this one thing that I'm talking about has the ability to change your life dramatically, to know that you already have victory, to know that there is nothing outside that has more power in your life than what you already have inside in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? You already have all that you need for life and godliness. So there is no spiritual oppression so great that you cannot function in the way that God is calling you to function. You are, not, you are not overrun by your circumstances. You're not overrun by the things in your life that you have the power to walk in obedience with God and that it's not burdensome. It's not weighty. It doesn't, it's not a difficult thing that God has given you everything you need in Christ Jesus. So in verse 5, he says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you know Jesus... You have overcome. That's enough. That's a sermon. If you know Jesus, you've overcome. We have the ability to, to live out our lives different, to, to rise above the events in Ferguson. We have the, the ability to see the world differently and respond to the world differently. You see, the fact of the matter is the world will continue to spin out of control. There will be another Ferguson. There will be uh, wars and rumors of wars, the scriptures say. You know, you, you probably are not going to be able to control everything in your family. There will be chaos in your family. You probably are never going to have a perfect work environment where it's just a, a beautiful oasis of happy bliss. Right? So what, what does that say to us? It says that there's always going to be chaos in our lives. There's always going to be things in our lives that come out of it. And, and, and John is saying, but, but that's okay because you've overcome the world. That's the world, but you've overcome the world. You have the ability to rise above those circumstances and to love one another in a profound and supernatural way. So then John goes on to explain this Jesus. He wants to make sure you know, well, what Jesus is he talking about? So in verses 6 through 12, he kind of reiterates some themes that he's given us throughout the whole letter. So if you read with me in verse 6, he says, this is the one. He's talking about Jesus, the one that we have victory. And he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but I love this. God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God. I think that's the most understated sentence in scripture. God's testimony is bigger than yours because he's God. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how that translates. Pretty clear, huh? Which he has given about his son. Verse 10, anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Whoever does not believe God has made him, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. God said it's true, and if you're saying it's not true, you're saying God's a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God is given about his son, verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God 
does not have the life. It's more of John's black and white, no gray area sort of language. We've seen this throughout our study of 1 John. He is, it's one or the other. There's no gray area at all. So there's a few schools of thought. There's uh, different scholars who would say different things about, about what I consider kind of confusing language in this whole uh, water and blood stuff. What does he mean when he says that, that Jesus came by water and blood? Well, I think that it's hard to take that passage out of context and then do some type of interpretive work with it. But when you look at it in the, the theme of the entire letter, it's not that confusing. Because one of the themes of 1 John is that Jesus really was human. He really was incarnate. As a matter of fact, most of our theology about the incarnation, you know what I mean by the incarnation, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Most of the theology that we have comes from the writings of John. This is part of his, his contribution, if you will, to our understanding of God. The incarnation was, a, we see it in other writers, but especially in John. So, so this is thematic in, in 1 John, the incarnation. So when he talks about being born, of water, he's talking about natural childbirth. And so when Jesus met with Nicodemus, you remember that story? And Nicodemus was trying to figure out the kingdom of God. And he said, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and of spirit. He was saying, you have to be physically born and you have to be spiritually born. And John's saying, look, Jesus was physically born. He really was human. And so the false teachers of the day, there was two schools. Some were saying, well, he never was human. He was just this divine being that showed up on the scene, did his thing, and we all got to see him. And there were others that said, well, no, he was human, but, but there was just like a, an anointing that came on him for a little bit of a time for those three years. And then before he went to his death, that anointing left. Otherwise, he never would have been allowed to die. And so these were the false teachers that John is talking about. And John saying, wait, you need to understand, no, he really was God, and he really was human. He really was born of water and he was also born of blood which is a, a reference could be a reference to the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross but it could also just be the picture of birth childbirth involves both water and blood it's a pretty graphic picture of of physical birth John goes on to write this this is the proof that we have. There's all kinds of evidence is what he's saying. This, the testimony that we have that Jesus really was human. The first testimony he talks about is the human testimony. There's historical facts. Now, you remember that there were these guys that were in the field. They were taking care of the sheep, and the angelic host came, and they, they sent him to see Jesus. Well, well, that story probably became kind of viral for whatever viral looked like back in the pre-Twitter Facebook days, but, but they talked about it. It's a small community. It's not like they kept that a secret. There was a testimony like, look, there's this baby, and he was born, and uh, like a bunch of angels showed up, and they told us about him, and we went there. It, it, this ain't your normal baby. There's something different going on. And then there was those wise men that came, and they became part of the testimony. And then anyone who experienced Jesus' ministry would become part of the human testimony. They saw Jesus doing those amazing miracles, the, the blind having sight and the lame walking. And so as they witnessed Jesus and they witnessed his teachings and they witnessed his miracles, they became part of the human testimony. And then there's Mary and Joseph who also had these amazing angelic revelations where they understood that this isn't your, just a normal baby. There's something else going on. There's all that human testimony. So we have the human testimony, but we also have the testimony of the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, it's, there's, there's two uh, ways that we can interpret that. One is, that, and he's making it very clear, that, that remember when Jesus said in John 14, he said, I'm going to go and the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit who will testify about all things about me. 
The Holy Spirit will help you to understand who Jesus really is, who I really am. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will make things clear to you. And even as we read in 1 John, and we will read, it says that the Spirit gives us understanding. So there's this inner testimony, like, like when we actually understand. You know that any time this makes sense to you, for the, those who stood on the stage today and talked about getting baptized, at that moment when it made sense to them that, oh, I get it, Jesus really is who he said he was. I really do need a savior in my life. That's a divine moment. That's the Holy Spirit making understanding, giving them understanding about who Jesus really is. So we have this inner testimony, but we also know when Jesus came out of the water at his baptism, that the, that the dove, right, came, the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove, so there was that testimony. And he says, well, if it's human testimony isn't enough, and the fact that, that we have all of this historical evidence that he really was human, and he really was divine, and we have the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it, we have God's testimony. Well, when did God testify that Jesus was his son? Well, when he came out of the water, what did he say? He said, this is my son. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then there was that transfiguration. You know what the transfiguration is? That's when, when Jesus was up on the mountain and he began to, to radiate his, his divinity, if you will. And, and he's walking around with these patriarchs and, and the, some of the, the, the three inner circle apostles are there and they're watching. And then what does God say? He says, this is my son. Listen to him. So we have the testimony of man, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and we have the testimony of God. And all John's trying to say is, look, I want you to realize that we have all kinds of evidence around us to make it clear that Jesus really is who Jesus said he was. And in Jesus, you have victory. You have overcome the world. This is good news. Are you glad to hear this? This is really good news. Look at verses 13 through 15. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I'm writing this letter to you, not this paragraph, not this sentence. He's saying, I'm writing this epistle, what we have been studying for the last 10 weeks. John wrote this letter to us. God wrote this letter to the church so that those of us who know Jesus know that we have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. I love that, that confidence word, and Norfolk touched on this last week. It means freedom of speech. That we can go to God with freedom of speech. We can ask God what we need to ask God. We can have a conversation with God. We have access to God. And he says, approaching God, that we ask him anything according to his will, and he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So not only have we overcome, not only do we have victory in this life, not only do we have victory right now, but we have eternal life present tense again right now we have eternal life you see eternal life isn't the insurance plan that we hold on to and we redeem that at our death that's not what what the scriptures are talking about when they talk about eternal life As a matter of fact jesus said this is eternal life that you know the son and you know the father that sent the son so the more you know god the more you know jesus the more you have a sense of god's presence in your life the more god is moving in you and the more you you have this connection to god that's life that's the life that's promised in scripture this knowing god more and more and more and the beauty is that life it starts right now it's not a sometime maybe once I die and when we die we're going to know God fully it says but right now we have the opportunity to know God more and more and more right now in this moment you are victorious 
You've already won. You have overcome. You have eternal life. And then John writes, our prayers have the power to move God. Now, think about that for a minute. Our individual prayers have the power to move God. How cool is that? The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the all-powerful God, Father God, who watches over everything, who, who, who has this amazing sovereign ability to know what we should be teaching. On one particular week, he's holding all these things together, yet our individual prayers move the heart of God. It says that God actually hears, that God is actually attuned to your prayers. Do you know that the God is actually listening to your individual prayers? That is a powerful thing for us to understand. Our prayers have the ability to move God in a particular direction. Now, I want to be super clear here. There is a mystery in prayer. God is not subject to us. God is not our cosmic genie. Um, there is in this verse and in all of the verses on prayer a picture of of a flow of relationship. That when we abide in Christ, our prayers have power. And you'll see it even as you read this, that what he's saying is as you know God, as you have life because you know God more and more, you're going to know God's will more and more, and you'll be able to pray God's will. And you'll also be able to, to know what, what the heart of God is and pray towards the heart of God, and your prayers will become more and more effective and more and more powerful. But this isn't about praying for anything you want, and it's going to happen. There's something else going on here. So I want to give you sort of some practical examples of how your prayers uh, can really avail much. So if it's God's desire that you know his son, so, so maybe you're here at Grace and you just haven't come to that place where you've put your faith in Christ. We're super glad you're here and we hope that you stay and that you, that you feel comfortable being here and, and that you'll continue to explore what that means. But if you are willing to pray, Lord, help me to know your son. If Jesus really is who Doug said he was just a few minutes ago, if Jesus really is who Jesus said he was, help me to know him. If you pray that prayer in earnest, I will tell you God will answer that prayer. God will answer that prayer because it's God's desire that you know his son. So maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but a great prayer for you is going to be, God, help me to know your son more. Help me to know Jesus more and more and more because as I know Jesus, then I know the Father who sent Jesus. And if that's God's will, then God's going to answer that prayer. Or if you pray, God, God, help me to have a heart that's fully devoted to you. If you pray that prayer in earnest, God's going to answer that prayer. Why? Because it's the will of God that you have, heart, have hearts that are fully devoted to him. What do you pray, God? Help me to connect with other people who will help me on my walk with God. Help me to have a community of believers around me that will help me and, and hold me accountable to walking out my faith with you. God's going to answer that prayer because God wants you to have community in your life. God wants you to have people in your life that will help guide and direct you. Lord, help me to respond to trials. Help me to respond to persecution with love. That's God's desire for you, so he'll answer that prayer if you pray it in earnest. God, help this church, Grace Community Church, to reach its full potential. God will answer that prayer. So we ask you guys all to pray at 9.30 every morning, to set your alarms at 9.30 in the morning and pray. Now there are over 1,000 of you who have made that commitment to pray for Grace at 9.30 every morning. Just pray that prayer. Help Grace to reach their full potential. 
Lord, help us to, to be the church you've called us to be. That's a prayer that God's going to want to answer because that's the heart of God. He wants us to be effective. He wants us to be the church that he's called us to be. So, so you can pray that prayer, but you can pray a prayer. You can say, God, give me a big house. Lord, give me a new car. Give me a great vacation home. Give me an obedient dog. That's my prayer. Give me an obedient dog. You can pray those things, but unless the Lord has whispered in your ear and said, I want to give you a new car. You can pray those things, but I'm not so sure they're all going to come to fruition. I don't think we have the ability to pray ourselves into the lap of luxury. I don't think that's what the promises of God are. I don't think that's what the prosperity gospel is all about. But we can pray. We can pray the heart of God. And so the blessing of God is, is that he wants to give you more of him. The promise is that he wants to pour out his spirit in us and through us. The prosperity of the prosperity gospel is not defined by your possessions, but it's defined by God's presence. And when we get that mixed up and we begin to pray for possessions, then we fail to understand what God is promising is more of him. And God may want you to give some things up in order to experience more of him, not have more stuff. So the last chapter of John, this chapter that we're in right now, is a summary of everything that we have learned over the last 10 or 12 weeks. Jesus really is the incarnate son of God. He really is a member of the divine trinity. We really do have victory in him. And, and that, that we are not like the world, that we have overcome the world. And we have the ability to love one another with supernatural power. And that this love that we have for one another, it's not a burden. The fact of the matter is we can stand in stark contrast to the events in Ferguson. We can be light and darkness. We can be life amidst death. We can be hope among the hopeless. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have overcome the world. The message of chapter 5 is we have victory and we have overcome. But John knows something. He knows that we're going to continue to mess up. He knows that we're going to continue to sin. How does he know that? Because he's human. And he's probably still having his own journey with sin. Like Paul, he struggled to do what's right. And we're all going to have moments where we, we step into sin and where we step out of the bounds and something's going to happen. And John knows that's going to happen. So he addresses it in verse 16. He says, if you see a brother commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give him life. I'm referring to those whose sin do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that leads to death. And what I want to say when I read that is, what? Huh? That's confusing language. And I can tell you that, that there has been many a debate about these uh, few sentences in Scripture. But it really only makes sense if you look at it in the context of the letter of 1 John. You see, John is writing to the people and he's helping them to understand that there are false teachers out there. And so there is a sin that leads to death. What's the sin that leads to death? A sin that takes you away from Jesus. So if, if there are people out there that are telling you that Jesus isn't really God, that Jesus really couldn't have been both man and human, if there's this false teaching, that sin is going to lead to death because there's only life in one place. There's life in Jesus. So there is a sin that leads to death, and that's the sin of denying that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. 
And so John wants to make that perfectly clear, and he wants to root that out of his church, and he wants people to understand, now, it all begins and ends with Jesus. And anybody who's saying it's not about Jesus, that is a sin that leads to death, and it will lead you to death as well. So if you understand that, and then you take all that confusing language that he wrote out of it, and you just look at the core of what he's saying, is when you see your brother sin, so it's some other type of sin, so if you see your brother uh, have an, a, a fit of anger or a rage or, or do something dishonest, when you see your brother sin, what are you supposed to do about it? You're supposed to pray for him. It's not very complicated. You pray for him, and what does it say? I love this. This is an amazing promise. Pray for them, and God will give them life. The million-dollar question is, is that how we handle sin in the church? Is that really how we handle sin, or do we, do we see somebody sinning, and then we go tell as many people as we can about it, or do we judge them unfairly? Do we actually, is that our first response, to really take that before the Father and pray for them, and not pray judgment on, like, Lord, that person's really screwed up, and you really need to bring about some punishment on them. That's not what this prayer is about. This is about bring life into them. We know that, that something's going on in their life, and it's taking them away from the core of the truth of the gospel, but, but bring life to them. And here's what happens. I guarantee you. Here's what's going to happen. As you pray for your friend, God is going to do something in you. So, so here's how it plays out for me. I, I started to pray. I said, God, I want you to be with Bob because Bob's really struggling with uh, anger and, and rage. And God says, yeah, Doug, how are you doing in that area? And I said, well, God, we're talking about Bob right now. And we'll talk about me later. Right now, let's just talk about Bob. I just want to pray for Bob because you need to bring Bob some life because Bob's struggling with anger and rage. And God says, yeah, I know. How are you doing? And next thing you know, God's showing me the plank in my own eye so that I can help remove the speck from somebody else's eye. So the scripture says that if we pray for our brother, God will give them life. But I would say that if you pray for your, your brother, God will give you life as well. And do you think we need more life in the body of Jesus Christ in the church? Of course we do. So what if we were to stop, what if we were to actually take this one application and we were actually to pray for one another when we saw something going on and we were allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our own lives as we prayed for our friends. John continues, look at verse 18. Remember, this is a victory speech. This is a letter about victory. He says, we know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. The one that was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. That's good news. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's, we just talked about that a few minutes ago. So that we may know him who is true. God gives us an understanding in our spirit to know that what we are hearing is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's what I want you to know, and we've said this before, but I just want you to hold on to it. This one paragraph can be awfully uh, hard. So I can read this, and if I'm not in the right spot, I think I'm doomed because I still sin. And I could read it and think, well, if I still sin, then I must not be 
a child of God because it says right here, if you sin, you're not a child of God. But remember, when John uses this language, he is talking about a life characterized by sin. There is a difference between making a mistake. There's a difference with, with, with stepping over the lines and, and having an indiscretion. There's a difference between having a moment where you sin and going into a season of repentance. He's talking about a life characterized by sin, that a life characterized by sin cannot be a person who is following Jesus. So this isn't about if you make a mistake, because John's already said, look, you're going to make mistakes. And when you make a mistake, good news, you have Jesus. He's an advocate who stands and, and prays for you, right? So we, we know that we live under grace. We know that we're going to still make mistakes. And then, but the beautiful part of this language is it's saying, look, you don't have to sin. This whole letter is telling us we don't have to sin. There's no sin that is so strong that it overpowers us, that we can overcome whatever we think has power over us. The fact is, we can rise above the world. We can rise above the way that the world responds to one another. What happens in Ferguson is one thing, but what happens in this church should be completely different. John says we have victory. And verse 20 says that we not only have victory, but we can understand who Jesus really is, that we really are. It says in, that, in that, those few sentences, it says that we are children of God a theological truth that we have almost no ability to understand whatsoever. It is a great thing for you to contemplate. What does it really mean that I am a child of the Most High God? Because that makes you a prince and a princess. It makes you an heir and a co-heir with Jesus himself. Those are amazing things for you to try to wrap your brain around because it's amazing truth that John is talking about. And then John ends with this really weird sentence. Verse 21. It says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Sort of like he's written the whole letter. He's like, yeah, and keep yourself from idols too. That would be good. <laughs> Just one more thing, keep yourself from idols. And it feels that way, but the truth of the matter, that's not what he's saying at all. You see, because the whole point of the letter is to turn towards Jesus. And when you turn to anything other than Jesus for comfort, when you turn to anything other than Jesus for satisfaction in your life, when you turn to anything other than Jesus in order to cope with the problems of the world, when you turn to anything other than Jesus, then it's an idol. He's saying, I want you to have the power of God in your life. I want you to walk in victory. I want you to know all that you have in, in, in Jesus. So, so keep yourself from idols. Turn to Jesus in every area of your life is what he's saying. I don't know that I've done as good a job expressing what I feel inside. But as I've studied this chapter this week, I've become more and more excited about what we have in Jesus. I have just been joyful. When I was here at Thanksgiving, we did the Thanksgiving service. I was just, I was almost giddy as I was thinking about, look, we've already overcome. We already have victory. I have everything I need for life and godliness. I'm a son of the most high God. This is all amazing truth. And I hope that you've, you've grasped that as we've studied First John. It's an amazing letter. But it's made me want to sing. And most of you are thinking, I hope he doesn't sing. <laughs> Trust me, you are hoping it. But that's what it's done. It's given me a, a heart of praise. So I wanted to end this service with a couple of songs, which is a little out of our, our norm. Um, so the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing two more songs. Some of you probably thought when the worship ended, like, well, that was quick. It was quick by design because we knew we were going to do a couple songs here. We're going to take the offering, which we didn't do earlier. Some of you missed that. Some of you didn't. Um, we're going to do that during the first song, and I'll pray for that as well. But I want to invite you to something. I want to invite you to sing. I want to invite you to celebrate. I want to invite you to realize that 
Jesus really is who he said he was, and we really do have victory in Jesus, and we have power to overcome the evil one, and there's, there's nothing that, that, that can overpower us that is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so the words that we pick, the songs that we pick, are, are songs of victory. They're songs of truth. They're songs of declaration. And I just hope as you sing that those words will penetrate your heart. So, Lord, I just pray for this church. I pray that, that as we uh, conclude the study of 1 John, it's been a great study. Lord, that we would love each other in a supernatural way, that the world would see that there's something different going on in this corner. Lord, help us to know how to approach one another and even to have great conversations about Ferguson. Help me to stand across the aisle from people I don't understand and, and have empathy and, and enter into a great dialogue with them. Help me to move towards my brother as they move towards me. Help us to extend grace to one another. Help us to, to just, help us to love one another with an unfailing love. But I'm so grateful for this church. I'm thankful for your son, Jesus. I pray even as we take the offering that you would just you'd bless it. You'd do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Help us to give with hearts of gratitude. Help us to sing with hearts of gratitude. Help us to leave this place with hearts of worship. In Jesus' awesome name we pray. Amen.